1: Hello podcast listeners, I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today we're featuring a debate from our online subscription service Intelligence Squared Plus. It features Leslie Riddock and Alex Massey going head-to-head on the question of whether the time is right for Scottish independence. It's a really fascinating debate and it was chaired by Manveen Rana, who is also the host of the Stories of Our Times podcast, and we hope you enjoy it. But before we go to this week's episode, I wanted to let you know about a new podcast we think you'll really enjoy. It's called Climate Solutions from our partners at the European Investment Bank. What would you give up to solve the climate crisis? Well, the EIB surveyed 30,000 people in every EU country, China, the US and the UK to find out what they're ready to do to fight climate change. The team at Climate Solutions then spoke to experts about what it all means for the future of our planet. To find out more and subscribe to this podcast, visit eib.org slash podcasts or subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's go to the episode.
0: Hello and welcome to this Intelligent Squared Plus debate with me, Manveen Rana. Now, tonight's debate couldn't be more timely. In a torrid week for Scottish politics, you'd be forgiven if you hadn't noticed that the Scottish Government has just published draft legislation for the holding of a second independence referendum. The SNP says it will attempt to pass the bill if the upcoming election in May returns a majority of MSPs who back independence. Despite Scotland voting to remain a part of the United Kingdom in 2014, the UK's decision to leave the European Union has put the question of independence back on the agenda at Holyrood. So is this the moment for Scotland to go it alone, or would it be better off sticking with the Union? In a moment, our two debaters are going to make their case in their opening speeches. Then I'll be taking your questions and encouraging some debate between them, potentially just stepping in occasionally to keep the peace, At 6.55 the speakers will end the debate with short closing statements and then we'll invite you to all place your final vote and we'll have the results at 7pm. Before we kick off I can just tell you now that as a a result of the pre-debate vote at the moment as things stand for we've got 14.7% and against 59.2% and with the undecideds at uh, surprisingly high 24.6%. So uh, potentially quite a lot to play for. <laughs> but before, without, without further ado, I'll hand you over to uh, our opening speeches from, to begin with, Leslie Riddick, who is speaking for The Motion tonight. She's a journalist, broadcaster and activist. She writes a column for the National Newspaper and was, was named the 2020 Scottish Independence Campaigner of the Year by the Scottish Independence Foundation. She's the author of many books, including Board," which is harder to say than you'd think, what post-Brexit Scotland can learn from the Nordics. Leslie, the floor is
3: yours. Right. Well, it's maybe worth saying, actually, that I didn't sort of come out of the womb being a great independence supporter. I didn't actually come out of the womb in uh, Scotland or Northern Ireland, where I grew up. I was born in Wolverhampton. My parents are from the highlands of Scotland. We moved to Belfast. And I grew up there till about the age of 13 and then came as a bit of an outsider to Scotland. Uh, I went to university at Oxford. I did a postgraduate degree in Cardiff. I went on the BBC's training course. I was meant to be a unionist. (laughs) I was meant to be sitting within the establishment. And I did. I've worked in television. I worked for Channel 4. I've worked for Radio 4, BBC 2, quite a number of parts of of the of of what forms the fundamentals if you like of Britain and yet really and, and actually to be honest no, uh, independence wasn't a big motivator for me until it became possible and I think the speed with which uh, we moved rapidly through devolution which like many people I was delighted to see it seemed like that would be a great move we quickly became very evident how much was being well on the one hand how much was released by simply having control over some things in Scotland. My parents come from the Highlands their family was cleared in Caithness they're very conscious of land reform they're not particularly radical people in any other way and on that issue alone quite a staggering realisation really of how being part of the United Kingdom had, had pretty much stifled any kind of progress for for possibly centuries. It's not an exaggeration to say. There are 32 dukes in the whole of Britain. They all own land in Scotland. We had feudal land tenure until 2004, the last country in Europe to get rid of it. We had primogeniture, the inheritance of large landed estates by the eldest son, until equally very recently, the last country in Europe to get rid of that. And that was all on Westminster's watch. We're the last country, practically, to have national parks. They've been in part of uh, England, set up since the 1950s. The first national park in Scotland was set up in 2004, after the Scottish Parliament. So the blockage of landed forces in the House of Lords has kept Scotland like a play park for the rich. And there was nothing we could do about that until we had a devolved parliament. I suppose that started me thinking, well, hang on, you know, what else? You look at the possibilities for Scotland. As somebody whose family comes from Caithness and Orkney, I'm very conscious of the renewable uh, energy potential for Scotland. It's enormous. It was big with wind. It's even bigger when it comes to tidal energy and marine energy. I've been quite involved in some of that. Energy is completely controlled by Westminster under devolution because, of course, the great fear is that oil... The oil revenues, if Scots had initially been aware of the size of them and had control over the revenue, would rapidly begin to realise there were different paths we could take, paths very similar to the far more sensible paths taken by Norway. Sadly, that boat has sailed for us, at least on oil. But here we are now with new possibilities, with a green revolution everyone keeps talking about and not doing anything about, Well, Scotland, it is not an exaggeration to say, is the Saudi Arabia of renewable energy. It's controlled by Westminster. Uh, Our companies are having to compete in contracts for difference against much larger operators south of the border and have rarely won contracts, especially in that crucial marine renewables field. We're using planning legislation simply to try to get a different mix of energy forward. We could do so much more if we had complete control of energy to shape the future of Scotland. And what I find now is it's not so much a kind of abstract argument to me. It's more that I watch policy developments here and I watch our democracy. We keep voting pretty solidly for a social democracy. We've been doing it for the best part of a 100 years with a small period in the 1950s. But we keep voting for a kind of mix of politics that we rarely get from Westminster. And yet these massive powers are still out of our hands. Uh, just last week, the Defence Review just blithely increased the number of nuclear warheads that will be cited very likely in Scotland by 45%. Fine. About 70 to 80% of Scots oppose the renewal of Trident. But what can we do about it? When it comes to the even bigger questions then of trade another other reserved power, you all know what's happened within the Brexit debate. The, the fact that Scotland almost discovered itself as a shape, as an imagined community, because no single council area in Scotland voted leave. Not one, not even the large fishing areas of Peterhead up in the northeast of Scotland or Shetland. And right at the border, that changed with Leave votes straight across the border from Remain areas in Scotland. That is evidence of a different outlook. And it's an outlook that wants freedom of movement, that's fairly easy-ozy about connections with Europe, that doesn't want to take back control necessarily in a kind of self-harming way, that looks on aghast at the kind of damage that's inflicted casually on every part of the United Kingdom, by a man who's quite prepared to break the law and never somehow be held to account. This just doesn't feel like the kind of democracy we think we're voting for or want. And of course, during the past year, there have been two governments on display because of the COVID crisis. There's been a constant presence by Nicola Sturgeon doing COVID briefings. I know many people think that's unfair, but let me tell you something. If uh, Boris Johnson had a daily presence on Scottish TV screens his popularity in Scotland would be even lower than it is at the moment and it's pretty much at rock bottom. So exposure only helps you if you are conveying a message and projecting an empathy that chimes with people. So there's lots of things that have happened so very quickly, really, since that first referendum. And I think people are at the stage now that they feel they want to have a second chance to clear this up or clear it down. And I, I'd be honest, I really think for the benefit of Scotland, we need to get to a stage where we know the shape of the of the, the playing field we're in. So many debates about the best kind of process for Scotland have been postponed because we don't know what level of powers we'll have. One day, if Gordon Brown is feeling energetic, we might soon be somewhere near federalism. The next day, when he hits uh, the reality of uh, the lack of interest that exists south of the border for that, suddenly that's evaporated again. We might get more powers, we might not. We might have them taken away by a Conservative government that's adopted Henry VIII's powers and can undermine, essentially, the devolution settlement we've got. So I just want to know, as a kind of quite practical person, I just want to know what we're be going to be living with for the foreseeable future, And to my mind, we've now come to the stage where we know we can do better than what we've seen on display for the last four to five years. There's been a shift, I think, amongst particularly professionals who are aghast at both Brexit and Covid handling. And there's yet been no real independence campaigning since the last referendum. So I'd like to see us make a decision have a campaign in the light of where we are now. There'll be difficulties for the yes argument as well as some advantages and that lets us move forward with some confidence in a way, and this might sound a wee bit cheeky in conclusion, that actually gives England and the rest of the United Kingdom, but particularly England, a bit of a reality check and perhaps a slight kick up the posterior in that an archaic, unmodernised system of government It's not going to be tolerated by everyone forever. There is the ability to change and there could be quite a chain reaction. Who knows if the Scots take up the possibility that will sit before them after the May election that ought to, to choose a different path. Thanks
0: so much, Leslie, for that passionate speech and the kick up the posterior. Uh, Much appreciated. Clearly the tiger over your shoulders like a spirit animal. But now I'd like to call upon Alex Massey to speak against the motion tonight. He's a political columnist for The Times and The Sunday Times and Scotland editor of The Spectator magazine and a regular contributor to BBC politics shows like Question Time, The Daily Politics and Radio 4's Any Questions. Alex, it's all yours.
2: Thank you very much, uh, Manveen, and uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you, Leslie, for your characteristic uh, Riddighian analysis of the case for, for independence. I suppose in response, I would say that if the motion is the time is right for Scottish independence, then on a very narrow, limited front, one could easily dispense with this by pointing out that now is precisely not the time to be holding a further in- referendum on independence. We are in the midst of the greatest peacetime emergency any of us have seen We have absolutely no idea exactly when or how or in what circumstances life will return to something approaching normality. It is extremely difficult to make any kind of plans for the short term, as anyone knowing anyone who's trying to book a summer holiday this year already knows, let alone in the medium to long term. And so it would, on that front, that narrow front alone, be deeply irresponsible, it seems to me, to ask people in Scotland to vote on the national question once again. It would be asking them to to buy a pig in a poke, to make a judgment about an unknowable future that is even more unknowable in these circumstances than would ordinarily be the case. They would lack the ability, I think, to make a truly informed judgment of it. And they would also lack, I think, the consent to have the argument. In 2011, when the SNP won a majority in the Scottish Parliament. Everybody agreed that it was entirely right and proper, fit and necessary even, for there to be a referendum on independence. The SNP had earned that right and opposition parties accepted it. That is to say, the people consented across the board to a referendum, which meant that even those who did not particularly thirst for or desire a referendum agreed that it was appropriate it should take place. And that created the kind of conditions in which all parties could, at least in theory, accept the result. Well, no such consensus exists at present, because it is only six years since Scotland voted on independence. And six years is not a long time, even if plenty of things have happened in the intervening period. And it is therefore, I think, reasonable for people, not just those who voted no in 2014, to say that it is too soon to return to the question. Because otherwise we are left in a situation where at any point, if at any point there is a majority in the Scottish Parliament that desires an independence referendum, that referendum must take place. So you could, perfectly, theoretically at any rate, have one in 2021, in 2023, 2025, and so on and so on, until such time as the people, wearied perhaps by this constant constitutional attritional warfare, vote in a way that the SNP and the nationalist campaign would like them to. And I'm not sure that that is an acceptable way of going about matters. I think that it is reasonable for people to say, yes, of course, we may revisit the question at some point in the future. But it is only, a, it is only decent, frankly, to wait uh, until a significant period of time has, has elapsed between referenda. Uh, and, and only then would, uh, would those who would vote no or those who think it is too soon uh, for a referendum give their consent to having it. So the conditions that existed in 2011 that led to the 2014 referendum do not exist. And then what of the prospectus for independence, even if it were to take place, even if it were to happen, what does it offer me? What does it offer other Scots? I would suggest there are three uh, things to consider here. First, the question of identity. Second, the question of prosperity. And third, the question of necessity. On the first of these, independence makes neither me nor Leslie nor anyone else any more Scottish than they are at present. It delivers precisely zero in terms of additional identity because we are, whether we like it or not, uh, exult in it or are sometimes frustrated by it. We are unavoidably Scots and there is nothing we can do about that. Uh, independence does not make us any more Scottish. But for many people in Scotland, it unavoidably takes something away. It strips a degree of identity that for many is quite precious to them. Uh, And for all the talk that a British component to Scottish identity would remain after independence, it is quite obvious that an independence campaign that is predicated on the rejection of a large part of uh, of that identity must fundamentally alter it, even for those who would wish to retain it. So on that question of identity, independence is a question, is a matter of leaving a smaller Scotland in many ways, a Scotland that is retreating from a large part of its own history, because there is a compelling argument as well, it seems to me, that the United Kingdom, for better, for worse, for uh, in richness or in, poor, uh, in sickness or in health and all the rest of it, is Scotland's creation much more than it is anybody else's. That Without Scotland, there is no United Kingdom. Uh, England cannot leave by virtue of its size. Northern Ireland is too generous, as so often. And Wales is somewhat trapped by being too small and with a nationalist movement that is much more based around culture and language, perhaps, than political expression and institutions. So without Scotland, there is no UK, because it is the house that we built for ourselves. Alex Salmond used to say that independence would would uh, allow England to to be shod of a surly lodger and have a good neighbour. But that thoroughly misunderstood uh, the reality of our history, because we're not a lodger in someone else's house, but rather uh, a partner uh, in a house we built ourselves. And so I think a large part of the nationalist reading of British history actually misunderstands our history. Then on the question of prosperity, it is, of course, entirely true that brexit in particular has strengthened the immediate short-term political argument for independence it's a perfectly respectable argument uh, uh, and many sane and intelligent people you know subscribe to it some of them my friends but it's not sufficient brexit might well be a very bad idea but if you view if you make the argument about brexit one of economics then independence, by your own logic, is a significantly more dangerous idea than Brexit itself. For if it is an act of economic self-harm and folly to to erect trade barriers with your largest trading partner, largest and closest trading partner, as indeed I am prepared to accept that it is, then if that is true for Brexit, it must be even more doubly true for Scottish independence, given that 60% of Scottish exports go to the rest of the United Kingdom, compared with only around 20% going to the European Union. So independence would actually, as a purely trading matter, cost Scotland significantly more than Brexit is costing Scotland at present. You know, that may seem very dry and boring, but money matters because it filters down into a question of the services that can be provided by government and therefore the, the well-being and quality of life of the people. And at present, Scotland runs a significant deficit that, while of course it could be made up after independence, would have to be made up either by increasing taxes or cutting services, at least in the short to medium term. And this is not just my view, it's the view of the Growth Commission uh, sponsored by Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP, and currently the basis for SNP economic policy a decade of fairly astringent policy would ensue. Now, you might call it austerity or not. It doesn't really matter. The effect ends up being the same. And it's not clear to me that a flag and a seat at the United Nations is worth all of that. And so therefore, the question of necessity arises. What problem does it really solve? If Britain is broken, and I'm quite prepared to admit that it may be, it seems to me that the honest thing to do is to fix the United Kingdom rather than to walk away from it. And it seems to me that if there is a bad government in London, the solution to that is to win the argument to elect a better one. Uh, For a bad government in Westminster, no more makes the argument for independence than a bad government in an independent Scotland would make the argument for union. And yet, if one of those statements is true, then the other must also be true. And so again, the argument has to be one on principle, it seems to me. Uh, And the question of independence founders on identity because it takes away rather than adds. It founders on prosperity because it takes away rather than adds prosperity. And it found us on necessity because there are very few problems that really make a massive difference to lives of people of Scotland that cannot already be solved. Independence is not some sort of magic toolkit that suddenly allows for the uh, MacGyver-like solving of any problem that presents itself. Because our future is already in large part in our own hands. And if we choose not to make that future a better one, then that is on us rather more than it is a reflection of the shortcomings of our present constitutional arrangements. And so for those reasons, and plenty more, I suppose, but for those ones will suffice for just now, I would suggest that that the time is not yet right for Scottish independence.
0: Thanks so much, Alex. And now we'll turn to your questions. We've got quite a few coming in already. So to begin with, we've got a question here asking, there are economic and financial risks associated with independence, as Alex was just pointing out. If these were to materialise, they could hit those who were most de- dependent on public services the hardest. Discuss. Leslie, you first.
3: Well, the, all the voting from the last time around suggested that the people who are most de- dependent on the state voted yes. I mean, they're looking at austerity. They're looking at universal credit that has been described as brutal by a UN rapporteur. They're looking at a grinding system where our pension in Britain is, I think, the lowest in the OECD, where unemployment benefit is the lowest in Europe, uh, where essentially the the post-war settlement that was part of the bargain that caused Scots to be enthusiastic parts of the union at the very beginning has gone or is is not rela- cannot be relied upon, and can't be ex- can't be extended or developed in ways that are consistent. You're quite right, Alex. If it was just one government, that would be one thing. What we're looking at now is a very strong possibility of a conservative government for a next decade. We've had that off and on, and never voted for them for such a very long time. So the economic and financial risks. Let's be straight about this. The last time around, independence looked like the risky option. And that's the way it was portrayed by everyone. Now we've got two risky options. Quite evidently, we've lost 40% of our exports through Brexit. We've got no flexibility at all within the United Kingdom in contrast to our neighbours. We've got a system that we know will not change. This is what we're going to be stuck with. And come on, Alex, the idea that Scots who form about 8 to 9% of the British population that tail can wag the dog, is absolutely ludicrous. We can't make any inroads at all unless we basically are speaking the language of the Westminster parties. So for all those reasons, yes, there are risks. There are risks either way. And now's the time to make a, a good decision about that. And can I just say, I don't mean right now in the middle of a pandemic and no one within the SNP is talking about that either. Alex.
2: Well, I mean, it's only a fortnight since Ian Blackford was suggesting ludicrously that a referendum could still be held this year. And only a month since Michael Russell, the SNP's constitution minister, was saying that, yes, of course, a referendum could be held this year. Now, I am quite happy to accept the argument that SNP politicians are treating their own supporters as though their supporters must be fools. But, you know, uh, it's not the sort of thing sensible grown-up politicians and political parties do. You know, if you're going to be presenting a a revolutionary prospectus as as independence is, then it seems to me that you have some duty to do so honestly. So when it comes to things like the economics and so on, you have to say, well, where is the extra 10 billion pounds a year going to come from? You know, that comes either from heroic economic growth, or it comes from heroic tax rises, or it comes from heroic cuts in public spending or some combination of the three. But of course, we do not receive such honesty from the SNP. I I have no objection to independence as a theoretical matter in many respects, but I do object to the fraudulent manner in which the case is so frequently put forward. You know, remember, this is a A party that chooses its policies based on politics, not economics, chooses its economic policies based on politics, not economics, which is why the SNP has had has had five different (laughs) currency positions in the last 25 years. Now, you know, because the, the question on currency, for instance, which is an important one, is not what would be the best economic outcome for an independent Scotland. But what is the currency that we? What is the currency position that we can use to persuade as the maximum number of people to vote for independence? And so that's why, as I say, you've had five different policies on currency in the last twenty-five years, and at the moment it's not quite quite clear what currency people in Scotland would be paid in. And I think it's reasonable for people to say, well, we'd like a degree of clarity on some of these issues, because it is not as though Scotland is escaping any kind of oppression. There is no great grievance that requires independence, that makes this a sort of give me liberty or give me death kind of struggle. It is entirely technocratic in that sense. And so it is reasonable for people to have some credible solutions to some fairly significant questions on, on pensions, on mortgages, on currency. And and it is not good enough, frankly, to say, well, it'll all be fine eventually.
3: I, I quite agree with you. I just want to hear non-fraudulent claims from both sides of this argument. And, you know, everything I'm hearing from you, I'm hearing Boris, I'm hearing Boris, I'm hearing Boris. And, you know, that's a difficulty, really. That we're dealing in a situation well, where there are Well wait confusing, a minute, Alex. And you're confusing you know. me with Mike Russell and Ian Blackford. So the point is we've got leaders. Let's not talk about organ grinders or, or monkeys here. We've got leaders who've said there will not be another independence referendum during a pandemic. So that is the situation. Of course there will have to be some decisions made about the best way forward in light of the change of Brexit. I for sure. I would love to have thought that we had a a Brexit that was uh, proceeded with on the basis of non-fraudulent claims. I don't even want to start talking about the side of buses and I'm not holding you personally accountable for it. Mm. But I don't want to live in that kind of democracy very, very much longer. The thing I would like to say is, of course, you're you're talking about there not being a grinding grievance that we're having to escape, and that's true. But that's what characterises Scotland's uh, push for independence as being quite different. It is a civic event sort of thing. So in the, in the past, independence has nearly always been about a religious kind of minority, a linguistic cohesion within a group of people who feel different. And strangely, and perhaps this dense, the cause for Scotland and, and the ease with which you can be seen as, as distinctive, the Scots are not linguistically different. We're not religiously different. We just keep having this irritating habit of voting, for a social democracy, we never see. So this is a new kind of thing. Okay, it is. And it may unravel more states than just this one, but you can't put this genie back in the bottle. It's not going to result in a referendum If there is another independence referendum and it's lost, I can't see, but it's not up to me. It's up to the people of Scotland. I can't see a push for it for a very long time. But we need to be able to clear up or clear down while well, we can still craft a different shape of society, and not have something rebuilt by people we expressly voted against, Leslie. Uh, but
2: on, if you look, on, at, but if you, I'm going to
3: interrupt. But on Alex's earlier
0: point, we've actually got a question from the audience here, which asks the same thing. It says, "Why do nationalists say little or nothing in public about their plans for the currency? What are yours?"
3: Well, can I, just, can I just say that I took up this invitation when it actually had four more people involved in it, including someone who was an actual economist. And your colleagues will know that I was quite reluctant to be ending up having to do an entire event where, as a non-economist, I have to come up with currency options. There are options that are there for any country. And in recent times, like the likes of Estonia that became independent 30 years ago, went through setting its own currency up, pegging with the Deutschmark and then joining the Euro. Now, you know, that does throw immediately all sorts of kind of alarm bells to people because you might have to change your ideas about what works for a currency. There is a question about admission to the EU and whether they will be hard line on a lot of the requirements that other entrants, including Sweden, uh, who entered in 1986, have not yet complied with. That could change. That's true. There is an option for Scotland to consider joining the halfway house of the EEA, which Norway and Iceland are in. It allows access to the single market. It doesn't put you in the customs union. That might be easier in terms of borders. There are choices. And to be honest with you, um, I have confidence that we will come up with currency arrangements, which are no less bad than the situation we are in at the minute, where as part of sterling, a currency and our economy Um, has been dragged down to an enormous degree that we're not even talking about. So that's my feeling on it. This
1: show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up, life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash intelligence. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing programme for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared.
0: We've got a, a, a rare, given where the audience appear to be before the debate, A uh, question for Alex. <laughs> How can you argue that there's no case for IndyRef2 on the basis that there was uh, an earlier referendum in 2014? On January the 1st, 2020, when the UK left the EU, the constitutional arrangement that Scotland voted for in 2014 ceased to exist. That in itself is reason enough to rerun the referendum, but doubly so when the promise to remain in the EU was explicitly made by the No campaign. How do you get over the, the Brexit bump?
2: I I, I don't. I I accept that that is, if you believe in the second referendum, a perfectly legitimate, indeed plausible argument to make. Um, It is one with some force, absolutely. However, it is possible to accept that that argument has some force that it creates the kind of meaningful change in circumstance that the Scottish government the SNP campaigned about in the 2016 Scottish parliamentary elections that would therefore that that, that if that meaningful change of circumstance took place that would be a sufficient trigger for a second referendum i accept that that has happened and that is a perfectly respectable argument however it is also a perfectly respectable argument that it is only 6 7 years since scotland Voted to remain part of the United Kingdom since it rejected independence, and it is perfectly respectable to say that you know while the question may indeed be asked again at some point in the future, it is not something that should be taking place every six years. But Alex, um, what every years. Can I just ask you? Know, you and what? so, and, and and that is a perfectly respectable argument of its position of its own. And I would, I would further add that there is no overwhelm at present. There is no overwhelming desire for a referendum within the next couple of years. All the opinion polling demonstrates as much that when people are asked if they wish there to be a referendum right now, they say no. Now, that doesn't mean that there should or could never be a referendum at any point in the future. But it goes back to my previous point, which is that such matters, such you know, life-changing, nation-changing matters... Mm-hmm should only be should only go ahead when there is a degree of consent that when in other words when everybody agrees that it is an appropriate moment for such a referendum to be held so in the current circumstances if you had 75% of people in Scotland saying that yes we demand a referendum in the next couple of years even if we had 66% of people saying we demand a referendum in the next couple of years then the argument for that referendum would be vastly stronger than it is if only 50% of people want it and 50% of people don't. Because if we've learned anything from our recent years of, of constitutional upheaval in the United Kingdom and our recent years of referendums, it is that the more consent you get at every stage of the process the better, the, the, the more likely it is you will have good outcomes upon which everybody can agree, even if they disagree with the specific aspects of the outcome. You know, that you have a process that is much more inclusive <laughs> and one in which everybody accepts the result.
3: Honestly, do you think anybody in Westminster can spell inclusive? You're still using a first-past-the-post system that is utterly discredited, um, there is still, unbelievably, for local elections in England, this archaic people, system. Using that because people in
2: the United Kingdom voted against uh, the alternative now, here's uh, an interesting uh, one. in a referendum, because including here's, people in Scotland. Here's, I think, what happens,
3: you know? here's what happens with the desire to modernise Britain. What happens is that a government gives a pretty rubbish form of something to the grumbling party. They then fall out with one another because it's not a very good form of what they're looking for. It's not a solution there's, dis- there's dissent, there's division. It happened with the referendum for the North East of England. It happened with the first Scottish referendum. It happened with the PR referendum, which had the worst kind of PR as the type that was advocated. Well, look, and what it's that not results my fault in if the keep wait a minute, Alex. What that results <laughs> in, that cute piece of behaviour, which none of us are fooled by, is that it just kicks the problem down the road for another 10 years. It kicks us and our unproductive democracy down the road for another 10 years when we have still 10% of seats that haven't changed hands since Queen Victoria. If you think that's the kind of modern country you want to be part of, that's great. But but here's the, the difficulty. Scots keep voting otherwise. You can talk about no, opinion polls no. till the cows come home, but I would like to know one thing from you, which is why are we bothering to have a Holyrood election in May when you're saying the outcome can never be that the result dictates a demand for another independence referendum.
2: No, I'm not saying that at all. Uh, quite on the contrary, I'm accepting that there are circumstances in which uh, a second independence so referendum be would be entirely appropriate. Now? No, no, I'm suggesting that uh, that the uh, precedent, the gold standard precedent, uh, to, to use Nicola Sturgeon's own words about it, the precedent set in 2011 for the 2014 referendum should, if it is to apply in, in the future, apply in full. And that means the consent of people who do not want that to be in independence. The, that means consent to have the argument.
1: So, uh, so and actually, at present,
2: that is, that is not
3: but in on. evidence. Who is not? Whereas it was, this is, where, whereas it was,
2: whereas it was, because David all the political Cameron parties would agree to something
3: party. like this and agreed to a procedure, the Edinburgh Agreement, um, because he was pretty convinced he was going to win. And now that there's a possibility that actually independence might win, suddenly we've got a Tory leader who will not countenance any kind of of arrangement or any sort of um, acceptance of the outcome of this election. So why do we bother what is the point can you know come on well I mean, I don't maybe, know if maybe, love maybe we can have I'm, arguments I'm about you know, what, 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 um, what, what will do, what
2: be better for <laughs> scottish schools or health or hospitals or something like that you know minor issues i i'm, I can I'm going see. to interrupt but, you know. and
0: let the audience um uh, get a question in we've got a question here asking how do you foresee an independent scotland's trade relationship with the eu which is a very interesting issue leslie you first
3: Well, the wee book that you were talking about there with the impronounceable name um, is partly because I I run a wee think tank called Nordic Horizons. It's we've taken an interest for 10 years in taking speakers over from these tediously successful small countries, which are never focused upon, generally speaking, by commentators who tend to look towards Germany, France, the big countries. You know, the, the Nordic countries are all AAA rated. They do extremely well and they're the most equal countries on Earth. They have the highest levels of trust between citizen and government you might think you might be passingly interested in how that all works out so to me the the kind of uh, way that we might be looking for the future do you know something I've completely forgotten the question you asked me that uh,
0: just trying to work out what an independent Scotland's re- trade relationship oh, trading was. yes so yes that, For that's a start, the would point. You, you would you sort of foresee membership of the EU
3: well I personally speaking, I would like us to have a proper debate on that. I mean, there was sixty two percent yes the last time round for 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 remaining in the EU. Do you think the um, EU I, would be amenable? Yes, and I think you'll see quite soon. Actually, a, a a bit more of a kind of encouragement from the EU and from the European side. That getting Scotland back, uh, an energy-rich, progressive set of people who've already, despite all the propaganda from within Britain, have just have have declared their European credentials. Why wouldn't you want that? I mean, that that's an attractive proposition, as it is for EFTA, the other trading bloc, who are our neighbours, Norway and Iceland. Um, would would I think welcome Scotland in a way that EFTA were very hostile to the idea of the huge and very marketized United Kingdom joining that group. So I think we've got options. They won't be hassle-free. Quite evidently, there's nothing at the moment in Britain that's hassle-free. Alex?
2: Yeah, no, uh, They won't be hassle-free. Well, that is undoubtedly true. And yet... You know, current Scottish government policy, current SNP policy is to rejoin the European Union, that's fine, but to rejoin the European Union on the presumption that Scotland will get absolutely everything it wants without having to sign up for anything it dislikes. So, for instance, Scotland will have some kind of unique formulation when it comes to the common fisheries policy. We will sign up for a reformed common fisheries policy, but we will not accept the common fisheries policy. You know, now this is nonsense, nonsense on stilts, in the same way as when it comes to currency. We will sign up to that. We will sign on the little dotted line that says, yes, we commit to joining the Euro one day, but secretly our fingers are crossed while we're doing this because we have no intention of doing so. Um, I'm not sure that that's the best way, you know, if you're wanting to join a club. The best way of of starting your membership and so on is by is by telling uh, its existing members that you have no intention of following their rules. However, um, the broader point is not so much on the particulars of EU membership or trade with the EU, except on uh, as it as it is again on the fact that the case for independence is made in such a shameless and fraudulent fashion so often. It is this all cake all the time kind of case that there is never any downside to independence. Everything is for the for For the best, everything is an upside. in that sense, it is strikingly similar as a matter of pure rhetoric to the argument made for Brexit, where again, it is all upside and no downside until the reality actually hits, and you discover that life is actually a little bit more complicated than that and so independence for all its possible advantages uh, in the long term. you know in the end it is, the, the case for it is made so dishonestly that it is very difficult to take seriously. Because an honest case for independence would have to admit to the uncertainty, would have to admit to the cost, the very real cost that would come with independence, not as some theoretical matter, but as an immediate consequence.
0: Well, Alex, on on that, um, we've got a question here, which um, which just says, you've cited the Scottish debt as uh, a reason not to opt for independence. But is the reverse not true? If the current economic state is so bad, then why would we persist with the same conditions that brought that a- about in the first place?
2: Well, that's an argument that the poorer you are, the better, the more the more imp- important it is that you um, opt for independence and so on. I mean, that's a that's a striking analysis, it seems to me, because I'm not sure that that is is really true. No, I mean the the, the fact that there are issues with the United Kingdom, undoubtedly, um, the dominance of the city of London, and the southeast of England, particularly economically, but not solely that, is an issue. Um, but it's not just an issue for Scotland; it's an issue for the North of England, uh, for the Midlands of England, for Wales, for Northern Ireland too. And so it seems to me that if we're to fix that, and large parts of that do need fixing, it is best fixed on a pan-UK basis, perhaps. And I don't see that independence is necessarily going to change quite as much as some of its proponents suggest, the gravitational pull of the southeast of England will continue to exist, uh, whether we like it or not, uh, and and so therefore, the the argument that because more public money is spent in Scotland than is raised in Scotland, the argument that that is a uh, 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 the notion that that is an argument for for the union's failure, is perplexing to me. It is an argument that suggests Scotland actually does rather well out of the Union, because overall Scotland's economic performance is actually pretty much bang average for the United Kingdom as a whole, that Scotland curiously actually is the most representative part of the UK, economically uh, speaking. All these indices where London is 125% and uh, the northeast of England is 78%, Scotland is about 100 in almost all of these. The argument, therefore, that the United Kingdom has failed because Scotland does well out of it is not an argument for... For Scottish independence, but an argument for union.
0: Well, this this might sort of be an extension uh, of, of that sort of thought process, actually, but it, it's, um, it's an interesting question. We've got one here from Patrick, who was born in Edinburgh and has lived in London for 35 years, who asks, do you think of Scotland as a tethered teenager? He says, Scotland has huge potential, but their energies are wasted trying to find ways to squeeze more pocket money from the parent, England. Time we allow the Scots to fly the nest and stand on their own two feet. Scots are energetic people. They largely built the empire and could certainly make Scotland great again. Alex... Well, I mean, you know, I've,
2: I've never thought that, that Scotland is is too small or, or too poor or even necessarily too stupid to, in the long run, make a decent fist of life after independence. Of course, it could be done, but it seems to me abundantly obvious that we would begin from a position of being poorer than we are at present. And it is incumbent on people who support independence to accept that and tell us how that would then be paid for. This notion, however, again, of, of Scotland as, as the sort of teenager and so on, I mean, it makes for an interesting sort of soap opera or sort of family psycho drama and so on but I'm not sure that it's actually based on very much in the way of, of fact um, you know this, there's this notion that Scott's, Scotland somehow therefore lacks agency within the United Kingdom I, I, I don't accept that it seems to me that Scotland has the ability to do very many things that it wants to do within the United Kingdom and it also cannot escape its responsibility for the creation of the United Kingdom so to the extent that the United Kingdom has failed that is a reflection of Scottish failure, Um, to the extent that uh, the United Kingdom is a successful place, as on most indices, it still is, despite everything, then that is also a testament to to Scottish success over the generations. Um, And so, again, I don't think of it as a family with England as the parent. I think that's a thorough, fundamental misreading of, of, of British political reality, of Scottish reality, and of the way in which people see themselves.
3: Leslie, is that how you see it? Well, you know, part of the reason that I see it such a delight to kind of tussle with Alex is he's such a reasonable guy, right? And he is not typical of the snottiness that can sometimes be connected with the Mother of Parliaments, which, despite the fact I am sorry, it seems to annoy everyone so much, is so chronically misunrepresentative. Which has the second largest unelected chamber in the world and still dares to call itself the Mother of Parliaments. It needs change. And, you know, you can talk, Alex, and say, yeah, casually, Britain might be broken. That's a pretty big concession. You can say that at some time in the long term, it might be good to have independence. Well, yeah. You know, we are sitting with a broken country that will not modernise, that we have to watch having strange displacements of its emotional energy into this futile exercise of taking back control to what? To to a parliament that actually was able to affect Brexit with something like the support of 41% of the electorate and you're wanting a 70% threshold for independence. So my thing is this, you know, for sure Britain is broken in so many different ways. It's over-centralised, it's marketized to within a, an inch of its life during the COVID uh, sort of pandemic cover. We've seen some of the biggest pieces of, of, of marketization of the health service quietly dropped. We saw the NHS trusts, uh, debts, all just quietly dropped at the beginning of COVID. We're now seeing the GP commissioning system dropped. The the whole of the privatisations that were brought in by Margaret Thatcher, some of them have been withstood in Scotland. And yet, actually, to comply with the Internal Market Bill, to be able to get us a trade deal somewhere, we might see our water privatised just to fit in with a pattern devised beyond our shores. So for sure, Britain is broken. I don't see the way that England and English voters are going around fixing it as being a very likely one to work and to modernise us because that's what we really need. We need to stop obsessing about the past, stop paying the World War II movies, stop this idea that something so exceptional about Britain, we're just a kind of average-sized country that could have got on with so many things and will not do it. So I've spent my adult life actually involved in so many aspects of British civic life. But that's enough already. At the age of 60, that's enough already. And I think the best option for many parts of the UK would be for the Scots to have the courage of their convictions, look around themselves and look at the asset base this country has, stop hiding in the corner, come into the sunlight and decide that it can do something that will be difficult. I'm... We are, I'm, I'm, we are I'm, almost I'm out of time. I'm so sorry, about that. I'm not convinced. Alex, I'm just i I'm just, just not convinced by this you, argument that, 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 your, that, that, that Scottish
2: independence will cause the English to wake up and fix the error of their ways. And so I, I, I think that's a, fun, a fundamental misreading of the, of the way people play. <laughs> you
3: know? In what way are we partners then if we can have no impact yeah. on one another? Well, well, that's I, I'm going to leave
0: you I'm going to let you both have the final word in just a moment. But before we do this, we're running out of time, but I've got one more question, which is quite an important one, I think. And it's just, Leslie, we were talking earlier about re-entry to the EU, potentially, for an independent Scotland. Somebody has written in pointing out, and this is a very important point, really, does the Spain-Catalan veto issue concern you? Is there a possibility no. that Spain will no, prevent uh, Scottish re-entry?
3: No, I mean, I think it's been made very clear by the Spanish, a succession of Spanish prime ministers, actually, that they do not intend to make a veto on Scottish re-entry. I was actually hauled over to Barcelona on the day that the uh, Declaration of Independence happened by BBC World for a debate. I was on the side of the Catalans, nobody else was, and there was a fair stack of people on the other side. At the end of it, actually, one of the constitutional specialists from the University of Valencia came over and said, you need to understand that we are fiercely opposed to Catalan independence. They were never a nation state. We have a constitution that, that actually makes it impossible for them to secede. They are a a linguistic minority that introduces problems for the rest of us. You are none of those things. And we are perfectly all right. Now, of course, he's not the one with the lion's say in all of this. But I think the politics of the EU have changed dramatically because of Brexit. And I don't think that the Spanish veto is the thing to be feared. We are running very late, but... Um,
2: yeah, I'd agree with that, by the way. <laughs> oh, good. The Spaniards <laughs> will do as they're told by Paris and Berlin. Just time <laughs> for agreement yeah. to
0: break out. But actually, Alex, so we're, we're just coming to the closing statements. You've got two minutes, please, to, to sum up your case.
2: Okay, well, let me just uh, pick up on something that Leslie said at the end there when she's talking about Spain and Catalonia and the Spanish constitution's provisions that make it illegal for Catalonia to secede from from Spain. No such provision exists in the United Kingdom. It is not illegal for Scotland to declare its independence subject to a legal referendum that everybody agrees to respect the outcome of taking place, just as it is not illegal in the United Kingdom for Northern Ireland to decide its future lies with the Republic of Ireland in a united all-Ireland. And that, I think, demonstrates something that is sometimes perhaps too often forgotten about in some of these debates, which is that despite one's dissatisfactions with the government of the day or with recent political developments or, or policy blunders or failures of state or whatever... At a certain fundamental level, the British state is liberal enough and flexible enough to accommodate those who would seek to destroy it. That makes it thoroughly different from most other states that would find themselves in comparable situations. Most states do not allow the possibility of their own destruction in a way that the British state does. And that tells us something I think actually quite useful about the UK, which is that, as I say, in a fairly fundamental way. It is a liberal entity that is a flexible entity as well, where it is not a unitary state, a state of unions, but not a unitary state, where actually it does evolve over time, but generally incrementally rather than in revolutionary steps. And the, the Britain of today is very different from the Britain of 100 years ago, And likely, should it survive, to be very different from the Britain of 100 years from now. A country that is a hyphenated place, where you are Scots-British, Welsh-British, Irish-British, English-British, Nigerian-British, Bangladeshi-British, Jamaican-British. A place that is a multinational and multicultural state, and always has been, even if many people deny the reality of that history. And so to that extent, it is a surprisingly modern country despite being a very old one in so many other ways. And it seems to me that there is something valuable about that, something worth preserving. And that means that whatever riches or opportunities Scottish independence might afford, or new adventures it would allow us, it would still be a loss, a diminution of us, a rejection of something that is quite unusual, not just in European terms, but in global terms. And I think that would be a shame. I think it would leave us all diminished, actually, even if the dreams of future prosperity insisted upon by those who advocate independence were to become reality. Because at a fundamental level, and this is backed by social science, political science, the gold standards of the British Social Attitude Survey and the Scottish Social Attitude Survey, we discover that with, I will grant you, the significant and important exception of Europe, on question after question, issue after issue, policy after policy, Position after position. When you look at the opinions of people in Scotland and you look at the opinions of people in England and Wales and Northern Ireland, they are so strikingly similar that people viewing from the outside might almost think them all part of the one country.
0: Thanks very much for that, Alex. Leslie, um we've just a two minute summary, please. We began with you and yeah, okay. end with you of, of your case for
3: independence. Well, yes. I mean, we, we, lots of countries that are contiguous and have shared a history have quite a lot of things in common. Having spent some time doing a doctorate in several books about the Nordic countries, having learned Norwegian, I can practically communicate with any of them except the Finns. So that proves relatively little. Uh, the Nordics were smart enough to have a shared travel area 40 years before Schengen. You know, if there's a will to actually work in a different way, there's a way to do it. And for every example that's cited, I hear different ones. I see Denmark that's able to let the pharaohs in Greenland draw down devolved powers when they feel they want to. I hear how unusual we are, how unique we are. I'll tell you why. Because most other countries with component parts like us have a formal federal system. Formal, Begora? Formal for Britain? You mean like written down so that somebody could question it? No way, Jose. So the thing that's unique about us is we are sitting in this limbo land where at any time the centre can decide to just call the parts back under its command. Uh, where we need to be is having moved forward to a federal solution. We should have had that from the start. Where we are exceptional is that we have neither. We are not the world's most far powerfully devolved parliament. In Scotland, we never will be. We'll never be federal. So we've got a choice. It's the status quo or independence. The exciting possibility, and Alex is right, there are lots of similarities. The strongest similarity in opinion poll after opinion poll when you drill down is between the people of Scotland and the people of London who are actually quite progressive as well. So I'm saying to you, if you want to come to somewhere that feels like home to you, that's voting remain, that wants to be part of freedom of movement, that embraces and looks to an outward looking kind of country, then actually the answer is Scotland. And I suspect we will have quite a a large input of people from the South when we actually take the plunge and set up a new state. Thank you very much for that, both
0: of you, for summarising the case. Now, we're going to move to the final vote. So if the audience could please vote now for or against the motion The Time Is Right for Scottish Independence. And just a reminder that when we started this event before the debate, uh, the results were for 14.7%, against 59.2%, and undecided 24.6%. So it'll be interesting to see how the argument has, has swung the case. It's been uh, an impassioned debate. Thank you both for, for speaking so well. And it's clearly a subject you're, you're both deeply... Um, uh, involved with, um, I'm, as somebody who voted in the last, in the last referendum, I found myself swerving several times this, this evening. So thank you for the quality of the debate. And thank you to everyone who sent in questions. We're sorry we couldn't get through them all, but thank you very much for sending them in. And thank you to Intelligence Squared for hosting this event. The final result is in for the motion. It's quite a success. Leslie um 40% <laughs> that's that's an increase uh, against 57% <laughs> undecided 3%. Thank you very much for for taking part in the event and thank you for everyone who joined us.